Hi, and welcome to Religious Not Spiritual, the podcast where Matt Cook, a disillusioned preacher, reads through the entire Bible and talks about whatever comes up. In this episode, we open with the Gospel of Luke, one of the best written books of the New Testament. We look at the stories of people around the birth of Christ, how Mary and Elizabeth are taking the reins of religious tradition, and how good religion is always looking to undermine oppression. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them unto us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Apparently, in the New Testament Greek, this and the beginning of Acts are some of the most beautiful Greek passages that we have. We don't know much about the New Testament writers, I mean, aside from tradition, right, which is dubious. But Luke, whoever wrote Luke, seems to have been really, really good at Greek. Um, you know, throughout Mark, there's interesting grammatical mistakes that, you know, Matthew fixes. But Luke makes it look good. Um, so this, this dedication, this opening, it's like it almost tells the reader, ooh, we're in for something professional, something polished. This is, this is more literary than Mark would have been. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abia, and he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. This is cool. So Luke and Matthew are the only Gospels that actually tell us anything about the birth of Jesus. They don't quite line up um, chronologically, but there are only sources for like these really cool um, birth myths, which we find in a lot of other religions as well. Whenever somebody very important, whenever the great sage is born, um, the universe itself pays attention. So people who are like spiritually attuned, like this Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, they're going to recognize something going on and respond to it. It's this really cool idea of nature and people and the universe itself reacting to an incarnation of something holy or new or really, really cool. Verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So I find any interaction between the mortal and the holy in any scripture, super, super fascinating, right? So, so we have here, we have here a priest coming in with incense. Everyone's praying outside. Look, so, so this is like a big to-do. This is like there's a religious ceremony going on, and it's involving all their senses, right? His body has to go into a different room. Incense has to be going on. Smell, fire, smoke. We're being primed for an encounter 
with the holy. And this really resonates with the passage in Isaiah uh, 5 or 6, I think 6. Um, you know, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord in the temple high and lifted up. The train of his room filled the temple and the seraphim were going. So, so it's like a new version of that. Luke is saying all that stuff that happened before, we're doing it again. But it's going to be new. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, the angel of the Lord, and fell on his face. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is, this is also cool. It, it, it really does seem that a, a bunch of the New Testament writers are playing with the myths that they've inherited and, and they're just trying to say, these are ours too. So we have this guy who's going to be born. He's going to be a Nazarite from birth, it seems. He's going to be like the Samson that doesn't fall. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. This is all very, very familiar stuff, right? This is also resonating with uh, the Abraham and Sarah's story. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold... You will be unable to speak until the day that these things come to place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Ooh, it really does set another foundation. This is so interesting. This is so interesting, because you remember when um, the angel of the Lord came to Abraham and Sarah way, way, way back and said, you will have a son. Sarah laughed, and the angel of the Lord, who may or may not have been God himself, um, said, why are you laughing? I'm going to do this. But he just let it be. He didn't like, you know, Gabriel, though. You, poor Zachariah is like, really? You're going to make this happen? He's like, okay, well, now you can't talk. Very sniffy, this Gabriel. But it does kind of set the foundation for what's to come in the Christian religion, doesn't it? Belief as central. Not just belief, but like a sure, confident, not even questioning. Yes, I believe. I believe. Even though there's no reason to believe. I saw a friend of mine had that poster, not a poster, like a wooden plaque in their house. Believe when there's no reason to believe. And it just makes me think, not, I'm not trying to say that believing in things is, is a problem, but why is that central? We always think that we do things based on the things that we believe, which I don't think is true. I think we're a lot more complicated than that. But it is very interesting to me how Christianity is making belief the number one thing. Let's move on. Verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. I love how Luke is setting this up. He gives this really cool introduction. And then, you know, it's the side story first. 
First, we talk about the forerunner, the one, the one who's going to come to show the one who's come and to, you know, very wonderfully fill, fulfill the prophecy of Elijah, which is at the end of Malachi, which I'm sure we all know. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O beloved one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So here we got Mary. Mary getting this commission. Don't be afraid. You're going to get pregnant. I'll tell Joseph it's okay. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And Gabriel's not mad at her, like at all. Right? Because what is... um. Oh, they have different questions. See, Zachariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man. And Mary said, How shall this be, since I am a virgin? So Zachariah's like, Prove it. And Mary's like, How, how is this going to happen? That's a really cool difference in perspectives, isn't it? Something very strange and new and something that you have not experienced is happening. And if you look at someone like Zachariah, the old guard, the one who does not have the beginner's mind, the one who thinks that they actually know it all, I mean, they just are doing the priestly thing. When they get a vision, they interrogate it. Yeah, how am I supposed to know? When something really magical, something earth-shaking, something gospely happens to him, his response is, how am I supposed to know this? Prove it. This experience that I'm having. I'm going to interrogate my experience instead of letting my experience interrogate me. Then you slip over to Mary. She gets much the same message. You're going to conceive in an impossible way. And instead of saying, prove it, she says, how are you going to do it? Right? You see an openness and a beginner-mindedness in that. And so Gabriel doesn't snap out at her. He's like, oh, good call, good call. I'm going to explain it to you, says Gabriel. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child that will be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. You see this openness to the Holy Spirit in, in, in both the women, right? Uh, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit as soon as she hears Mary's voice. And, when, and, and, and even the conception has to do with the Holy Spirit coming uh, down upon her. But it is interesting. It is interesting how since this child, 
who is to be born is not the product of sex. The child will be called holy. The child can be holy because nobody was naked when he was conceived. And also in evangelicalism, there's this weird sort of a folk idea, because I don't really think it's backed up in scripture. But there's this neat idea where the sin is passed on through the father somehow. So if you so so that's one of the reasons that Mary had to uh, conceive Jesus sinlessly uh, without without a male donor, because it's not as if there's a sin gene, but um, there kind of is, and it goes through the guys. That's that's not that's not you know don't hold me to that. A serious Bible teacher is not gonna probably hold that. It's it's one of those folk things like um like I remember hearing in my assembly growing up talking about dinosaurs. Cause I love dinosaurs. Dinosaurs were great. And I actually had an adult tell me, actually, you know, those bones were buried by the devil to fool unbelievers, don't you know? I was, I was shocked that he believed that. I was shocked. I must have been 10 years old. And I thought, what are you talking about? I understand that, of course, you know, God made the world in six days, and it's probably only a few thousand years old. But still, that's a weird theory. That's a weird way of getting around the hard scientific evidence. Which is another reason why it's so great to do religion without having to believe in it. What, how do I reconcile things like supernatural events, and the creation of the world? I don't. This is just a, a book. A book with cool stories. Belief has got to not be the center of religion. Anyway, what are you saying, Elizabeth? Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Oh, this is just such an amazing, touching scene. Two women and a, two children to come, sitting together, talking about how they're going to change the world between the two of them. How, how, how the lineage that these two women are going to pass on to the next generation are going to be a fulfillment of everything that they've ever hoped for. I like that. And then we have a very famous passage. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel and remembers of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is really really cool this whole section from mary visiting to the whole magnificat you could almost take this and i would love to see and there i guarantee there must be these things that i just have not been exposed to but these feminist interpretations of the gospels of this idea of of overthrowing the present ruling system the rich being sent away empty the hungry being filled with good things this this sort of a topsy-turvy instead of patriarchs will have matriarchs um, it's, it's, it's a very exciting thing. One of the things that really gets me about the whole Christian scaffolding, the whole system, is that it seems, and I must have mentioned this before, it seems built into it a certain kind 
of necessary revolution and rebellion uh, to whatever edifice gets erected. I mean, it, it culminating, of course, in the most marginalized and accursed person being identified with the deity. Um, I wish that we were in Matthew right now, Matthew 25. Like, it's, it's all this idea that, that the least of these is the Christ, is the God, who has come to us through these women with this vision to turn things over, to change the valuation system completely. That's a cool story. That, that, that has the potential of being a gospel. And of course, by gospel, I mean any good story that can change any, everything. A good story that changes everything. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. Has Joseph been mentioned at all? Yeah, yeah. It mentions that she was engaged to him. Other than that, nothing. Which um, is pretty cool, because I believe in Matthew, uh, the angel appears to Joseph, too, to tell him, yo, don't worry, it's God's baby. Take care of it. Don't run off. But that's not a mention in Luke. Luke doesn't care about Joseph. Luke is focused. Verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbor and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and wrote, his name is John. I'm seeing in this a line of patriarchy broken. No, this son will not be named after his father. His name is John. But there's no relatives with that name. Exactly. We're going to try something completely new now. The way that things have been going, the whole uh, uh, system isn't working. It needs to be overthrown. We're not calling him Zachariah. We're not searching our relatives for another name. This one's name is John. Yahweh is gracious. And as soon as the mute patriarch backs up the mother on this, right? Because this is her. This is her saying the kid's John. And they ask him, he's the authority, and he backs her up. Yeah, his name is John. And then, in verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. A lot of expectation. There's a two-sided thing when we want to change the world, isn't there? Because if we're trying to change the world, it almost always seems to involve the people who are younger than us. Right? And there's an issue there, because what if John comes out and he's like, I don't actually want to do this. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, this is exciting. He can only really speak when the Holy Spirit comes upon him. This is cool. And he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, 
to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. These prophecies and these prayers are like prayers of the cessation of oppression, which is like one of the main themes in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. It's this breaking free of bondage, which carries very strongly in the New Testament, because um, it is always talking about the collapse of empire, but it's also with the added emphasis on a spiritual uh, rebirth, which we also do see in the Hebrew Bible a lot. But because of the emphasis in, in the New Testament, the theme of ending oppression gets left behind, gets de-emphasized. And that's why we have these really messed up moments in the church today where the people who are speaking out against helping the marginalized are generally the Christians, right? Which is weird and messed up and really kind of anti-Christy. Because, I'm, well, I mean, well, you know what? We're reading Luke, so it'll become clear what Jesus thinks we should be doing about the marginalized and the outcast people in any society. Let's continue with Zechariah, though. What have you been saying? That we might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This prayer is really also charged with some of the prophecies, because right now I think Zachariah is referencing Isaiah, talking about giving light to those who sit in darkness. All that stuff reminds me of the kingdom of God. Which, that, that, that's the New Testament word for it. Um, but in Isaiah, it talks about the day when, you know, rulers will be righteous. Nobody will have to teach anybody because everybody will know the way of peace. And all violent animals will be not tame, but harmless. And they will play together. This, this image of a world in which we all actually walk in wisdom and love, um, which in a way I think all religions are kind of clamoring for, reaching for, through different roads. So when I see Zechariah pray in this way, talking about giving light to those in darkness and talking about being able to serve God without fear from our enemies, that's what I'm thinking about. Talking about this inheritance of a tradition that includes a view to a better way of doing humanity. And that's what that's one of the things that I really enjoy about religion, even though I don't believe in it. And even though I don't believe, let's face it, that the lion will lay down with the lamb, it seems weirdly specific and not plausible. But to shoot for a society like that, well, that's one of the most wonderful aspirational lies we can come up with. And even especially if we know that, you know, we've made up that goal, it still gives us something to shoot for, which I think is very, very beautiful. All right, verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Did it do 